Hi there, this is Pastor Aaron of Fairview Cornerstone Baptist Church, and we pray that through the preaching of God's Word that you were encouraged and pointed to Christ, our glorious Savior. If you have any questions or comments, uh, you can find us at www.fairviewcornerstone.com, and uh, please write to us. We'd love to uh, hear any questions or comments. We pray the Lord encourage you through this sermon. I can ask you to stand uh, with me as we read from the Word of God together. Genesis 3, and we'll start reading at verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat. All the days of your life I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Heavenly Father, we just come once more, Father, and we ask now that you would answer the the cry of the song that we started with, Lord. You open the eyes of our heart, Lord. We know that we're prone to wander. We're prone to distraction, God. We ask that by your Spirit, you would give us understanding in a fresh way, that you would encourage our hearts, Lord, and that you would expose our sin, and Lord, that we would uh, flee to Christ in a fresh way, see him as our champion, as, Lord, the the author and finisher of our faith. And I pray that you would do this in his name. Amen. You may be seated. So I guess this could kind of be uh, almost part two of of what we did last week, Because this week I want to continue looking at this theme of the promised seed from the woman who will crush the head of the serpent and who will be, uh, who the serpent will strike his heel. But I want to look at that victory that God declared in Genesis. I want to look at it with you through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And then also to see that victory lived out through those who follow Christ, through the Christians, through those who have been born of God, that victory still being played out over the serpent. And I want to encourage you, as we look at these things, I have just reminded this past week of how the Christian worldview, these truths that we look at in Scripture, come so directly against our uh, our culture and its way of understanding things. We live in a materialistic uh, naturalistic culture by and large where the, the, the idea is that before you can believe anything, there must be tangible evidence and anything that cannot be tangibly proved with physical evidence is to be rejected. And so for many to think of God as a creator, to think of angels rebelling against him in heaven in an unseen spiritual realm and to think of a Messiah being prophesied in thousands of years ago, fulfilled in Christ, all of that seems like a myth or a fairy tale in our culture for the most part. And so my encouragement is to remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2.14 as we look at these things. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are folly to him and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. And so if you feel in your heart doubts rising, like, can I really believe all this is true? Is there really a God in heaven? Is this, is this battle of darkness and light real? And you, you maybe feel that doubt at times. 
Don't throw up your hands and walk away, but rather acknowledge what Paul is saying. These things to our flesh, to our natural way of thinking, are foolishness. And so instead of throwing up your hands and saying, well, it must not be true, fall on your face before God and say, God, open my eyes. Grant me faith. Grant me repentance. Help me to see. And as you do that, I promise you are praying a prayer the Lord loves to answer. And so I encourage you with that as we look at this continual theme of Christ's victory over the serpent, the crushing of the serpent. And quick review last week, um, if you remember, there were three designs we looked at in this curse to the serpent. And the first one was that there was a natural, the natural creature, the snake. Um, kids, how, how many of you have seen a snake before? Does it have legs or does it slither on its belly on the ground? Slithers, right? That, this was God's curse upon this creature. It was to crawl on its belly, to eat of the dust. And that was the first design. The second design was that that was a picture of God's judgment upon Lucifer, the fallen angel, um, the, the, who was created as an archangel but rebelled against God. And we won't turn there now, but you see glimpses of that rebellion of Lucifer in Isaiah 14 and 12, Ezekiel 28 and 13, you see the description of this mighty angel of, who was beautiful and glorious and yet desired to put himself above God and so was cast out of heaven, was cast down to the ground. And then the third design, which is what we will kind of carry on from this morning um, in the curse to the serpent, was this battle that God declares upon the serpent through the woman. Through her offspring, God declares war on the serpent through the woman. And it said, he said that there will be enmity there. And that is going to continue until Christ returns again and finally judges the serpent in hell. So, so that was where we left off. And if you remember, we kind of did a survey through the Old Testament of how this line carried on in the Old Testament and the serpent pursues and you can think of from Eve and Sarah or Ruth or Rahab, these women that were chosen to carry on this line who would bring Christ. And so if you want to just turn now to Matthew, and we're going to spend a little bit of time in Matthew this morning because we kind of left off in Bethlehem, Christ being born. And as you understand this battle that began in Genesis between the serpent, between the devil and the woman and her offspring, then it's no surprise that when Christ comes, when the fullness of time has arrived and the prophecies are about to be fulfilled and Jesus is about to be born, it's no surprise then that we find he is born in the midst of an intense battle for his life. So what I want to do this morning is look at three ways that God gains victory over the serpent. Three ways that God gains victory over the serpent. And the first one we're going to see is through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And then we'll carry on, but we're going to spend some time here looking at this. So if you go to Matthew 2, 15, and I don't mean to rush the seasons here. I know that um, Costco gets away with rushing Christmas all the time, so I guess why can't I talk about Christmas a little bit before, right? So we're going to look just a little bit at 2.15, and you have the events around the birth of Christ, and you know the, the Christmas story that uh, Mary and Joseph uh, find themselves in Bethlehem, 
For that was the, the place that was prophesied this Messiah would come. But we see that, that there, is a, there is a presence of the serpent already trying to devour. And we see that there is Herod the king. And the wise men, when they talked to Herod, Herod told them in, in verse 8, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you found him, bring me word that I may too come and worship him. And so they go on their way, and they come to Bethlehem. And now we often think that the wise men were there at the manger. They were not there at the manger. They came later. And you see that because we're told that they come to the house. Um, and they enter in the house in verse 10. When they saw the star, they rejoice exceedingly with great joy. And they go into the house. They saw the child with Mary his mother. And they fell down and worshipped him. And so it would seem that the, the, the wise men come later on in the life of Christ as a, as a toddler, possibly one year old. And they worship Christ. They present their gifts to this Messiah, to this seed that was prophesied. And then God warns them in a dream not to go back to Herod and tell him the location of the child. So they go back another way, we find in verse 13. And then God warns Joseph, you need to leave this place. You need to go into Egypt and remain there for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And you know what Herod does. He decrees. He realizes the wise men have tricked him. They didn't tell him where the child was. And now he's angry. And so he decrees, we find in verse 16, that every boy in Bethlehem and in the region that is two and under is to be slaughtered in the hopes of Herod destroying this promised king. And so we see at the very beginning of the life of Christ, he is born into this conflict between the serpent and the promise that he will defeat him. And we don't have a lot about the, the childhood of Jesus. The only place you might go um, to look at Christ as a, as a young boy, we find that um, in Luke 2.49, Mary and Joseph have gone into into Jerusalem for a feast and Jesus is there and when they go to leave they, they have that moment that maybe some of you parents have felt like we just forgot a child. We don't know where our child is and they go back and find Jesus in the temple listening to the, the teachers. And from that point we don't know a lot of the, the early life of Christ but then we have this man come on the scene. John the Baptist, right? And he is called to hold the torch like a, a, like a best man for the bridegroom, to hold the torch for the bridegroom to come. And John steps forward calling people to repent, calling people to be baptized and proclaiming the, the kingdom of God coming. And even John tells him, identifies himself as like that of a best man. He says in John 3.29, my joy is to see the groom come. I'm the best man. I'm the one who gets the privilege of, of announcing his arrival. And so if you go over just a little bit more to Matthew 4, John the Baptist, he baptizes Christ to fulfill all righteousness and to identify Jesus as this promised seed, as the Messiah. And then immediately after Christ is baptized and he begins his earthly ministry we find that Jesus is led into the desert. We're told in chapter 4, verse 1, Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. 
So here is Christ beginning his earthly ministry. He's been baptized by John. He's been identified by, the, by John as the Messiah. God himself has spoke over him. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And Christ enters into the conflict of this, with this serpent, the tempter, we're told in verse 3, comes to Christ and he, just as he stood in the garden and tempted Adam and Eve to disobey God, to rebel against God's command, so the devil now comes to Christ, the God-man, and he is going to tempt him in the same way. But in verse 2, we're told Jesus is not in a garden surrounded by beautiful fruit trees where he is able to eat all that he wants, but rather Christ is in a desert after having fasted for 40 days, which would only be possible by the grace of God to survive. And so when it says he was hungry, that's definitely an understatement. He was most certainly hungry, and, and, and the serpent comes to Christ to tempt him to listen to his voice instead of the voice of the Father. And don't miss what Satan comes and tempts Jesus with. If, if, your, if your theology of angels and demons is coming from Hollywood, you are going to absolutely miss the schemes of the devil. Because Hollywood would portray the devil as this guy with red skin and horns and a, you know, a, a dark cloak or something like that. And yet, Satan doesn't come in this horrific way, but rather as we're told by Paul, he can come as an angel of light and he comes not offering, you know, pornographic magazines, but he offers bread. He offers security. He offers influence and power. And you see the subtlety of the serpent. He comes to Christ and says, if you'll just make some bread here, um, then you could be fed. You wouldn't have to be hungry, Jesus. Something that would seem so innocent, and yet Christ says, no, man shall not live by bread alone. And Christ rebukes the devil with the word of God. And I was listening to a little bit of uh, um, David Platt, and uh, he was talking about just angels and demons, and he pointed out that Christ didn't have to use the Scriptures because, of course, as Jesus is speaking, he's speaking Scripture, Right? We, we have the recorded words of Jesus and they become scripture. But rather as an example to us, when we encounter temptation, we use the word of God to defeat this serpent. And, and you know the devil goes on, he tempts Christ again to, to basically for, for security that he could jump off of this temple and, and the Lord would preserve him, even quoting scripture. And again, Jesus rebukes the serpent and defeats his temptation and then finally, Satan offers him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And Jesus says, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him alone shall you serve. And you see Christ enter onto the scene as the one to defeat the serpent, to crush his head. And Christ, at the beginning, reigns victorious over the serpent and defeats him. And I don't know if some of you have probably seen the, um, the Chronicles of Narnia that C.S. Lewis wrote. And he portrays, you have the, the wicked queen who's trying to tempt Edmund, um, the, the son of Adam, to follow her. 
And it was, it was interesting how he portrayed it that the queen offers him Turkish delight, which I think would translate maybe to a Canadian maple at Tim Hortons or something. I don't know exactly what Turkish delight is like. But this is the subtlety of the serpent. And yet Christ sees through his schemes and defeats him through the word of God. And so let us be mindful of this serpent, this subtlety that he comes to us. Not so much maybe that which is obviously grotesque, but that he comes peddling delicious fruit and bread and security and influence. And what we don't realize is that as we take that, he is leading us from depending on Christ and finding joy in him. And as we go from there, Jesus continues to encounter this serpent in his life. And I know we can't go through this exhaustively, but flip over to Matthew 4.23. I love how Matthew describes the ministry of Christ as he begins his ministry, his impact upon the darkness, his impact upon this kingdom of the serpent. We find in 4.23, Matthew writes, And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every disease, every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those who were afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, um, epileptics, sorry, I can't, that word, and paralytics, and he healed them, and great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. You have Christ as the seed of the woman comes in, breaking into this darkness, the very, the, the light of God, the word of God, as John describes him, coming into the darkness, and he begins this wake of light, of restoration, of redemption, of healing, and Christ comes crushing the serpent through his earthly ministry. And there's basically, and it's important to understand, as we think of Christ's kingdom and his declaring war on the kingdom of the serpent, the kingdom of darkness, there are basically two types of evil that Jesus encounters, and he deals with them differently. There is moral evil or sin, the actions that we do, murder, hatred, pride, lust, all of these things. Christ encounters those in his ministry, and the way that he deals with them is not by casting out a demon, but proclaiming the truth and calling men to repentance. Because there is, a, there is a movement today that would want to take sins like lust or pride or anger and attribute that all to demonic activity. And yet when it comes to moral evil, to our sinful actions, that is something we are responsible for. That is something that comes from our own sinful nature. And Christ deals with it with the proclamation of truth, with the gospel, and a call to repent before God for your sin. And so there's moral evil that Christ encounters. And then there is also natural evil. And we see that this is, by and large, what, what Matthew is describing. Natural evil that Christ encounters, um, a, a, a demonic oppression, sickness, disease, um, bondage. He, he, he encounters these things differently than that of, of the moral evil. The natural evil, he heals, he casts the demons out, 
He delivers the, the man who is cutting himself at the tombs, who is, we're told, possessed by a legion of demons. And Christ comes, and by the authority that he has, he casts those demons out, and he heals the sick. And we know that, I, I couldn't, you can't think of the example of Job, and we think of our suffering, we think of all of the sickness that we see, that we hear, and it's important to understand that as Christ encounters this, he is doing this in a way that reveals his nature. He is manifesting his glory. And so the way that we encounter world hunger isn't necessarily going to be like Christ who would, from the few loaves and fish, feed thousands because Christ is standing as one who is manifesting his glory and yes, he can still do miracles, but you need to see the uniqueness of Christ and how he is revealing himself as this promised seed. And we think of suffering in our own time. You think of the example of Job, that there is a spiritual reality to the trials that we face that we can't see. And the beauty of Job is that we get this, this story of, of Satan coming into the presence of God where all of the angels of God are, are gathered and he, he tells God, the only reason Job is faithful is because you have protected him. You have blessed him with everything that a man could want. Children and cattle and land and, and abundance, health. And Satan says, if, I, if, if that's removed, then Satan's certainly going to curse you. And the amazing thing that we often miss with the story of Job is it's a heavenly view of suffering that we often don't think about. Because as you can imagine, the hosts of heaven, thousands upon thousands of angels are watching this unfold. What's going to happen when the serpent takes everything from Job, when he takes his health, when he takes his land, when he kills his children? What's Job going to do? Will the serpent be triumphant or will God be triumphant? And so when you start to understand this battle between the serpent and Christ's reign, you realize that your suffering, our trials, are an opportunity to lead the hosts of heaven in worship. Because what happens is Job loses everything. He just shaves his head, he covers himself in sackcloth and ashes, but he says, Lord has given and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And you can imagine 10,000 upon 10,000 angels rise to their feet and raise their hands in the air and say, glory be to God who is worthy of worship. And Job had no idea that any of that was going on. But the hosts of heaven are rejoicing at the victory of the Lamb over this serpent. And when you start to understand your trials become an opportunity to display the victory of Christ, to display the supremacy of God among angels, then it gives you hope and it helps you know that it is not meaningless. It's not in vain that we face these things. And so we see Christ in his life continue to conquer the serpent, to declare war on this kingdom of darkness. And that's the life of Christ, the death of Jesus. So the serpent is constantly pursuing Christ and his ministry and his life. And wherever Jesus encounters a demon, he casts it out and he carries on. And Satan realizes, I can't stop him. I can't defeat him. So I will try to kill him. 
And we know that there is the pro- God's uh, plan that Christ would die, but there's also the influence of the serpent. We know in John 6 that uh, Judas was not a believer in Christ. He did not have saving faith. Because we're told in John 6 that, that Jesus knew who were not believing. And in John 13, 27, we're told that Satan enters Judas. He possesses Judas for the reason to betray Christ and to hand him over to the religious leaders, to the Romans, to be crucified unjustly. And it is as though Satan is taking one last attempt to destroy this seed. And perhaps if he can have him killed, he will actually win this battle. And you can imagine again the the hosts of heaven looking upon this, the disciples and those who followed Christ looking at this, Jesus, the Messiah, the one who healed the sick and cast out demons is now being handed over to an unjust trial to be murdered as a criminal between two thieves. And it must have been very difficult to be like, what is happening here? It would seem that darkness is winning. And as Jesus is beaten and mocked and a crown of thorns is is beaten down upon his head and he's nailed through the hands, he's nailed through his feet to a cross between two criminals, how how the serpent, how Satan must have laughed, how he must have actually thought he had done it, he had defeated the seed of the woman. And for three days it would seem that the light had been forever removed that somehow the serpent had actually won. But we're told in the Scriptures, even Hebrews 2.14, that Christ came, that it says, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. In the death of Christ, he enters into the very power that Satan had, the power of death, Hebrews tells us in 2.14. And as Jesus enters into death, he gives himself over. It is from there, as the old Puritans used to say, that Jesus poisoned death from the inside. Jesus, as the spotless Lamb of God, dies and through his death delivers the victorious blow to the serpent. And I don't know how much Satan understood this, but it would seem that he did not see that coming. It would seem that Satan did not understand how this, his very act in handing Christ over was going to be the way in which God defeated him. And you can imagine on that third morning as the ground begins to shake and the stone is moved aside and Christ's body comes back to life, a glorified body rises up from the tomb and Jesus walks out conquering the serpent. How Satan must have screamed in fear and all of the hosts of darkness realized they have been defeated. And then the, the, as we think about the, the, the death and resurrection of Christ, we find also not only was it the, the defeat of the enemy, but we're told in Colossians that Jesus, by canceling the, de- the, debt of, the record of debt that stood against us, 
with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. And not only is Christ defeating the serpent and his power over humanity, but he is also, we're told, takes the debt of sin that, that I have accumulated, that you have accumulated. My pride, my lust, my anger, all nailed to Christ. Every hateful word, every lustful thought, every prideful um, word that I ever will speak or have spoke, nailed to Christ on the cross as he bears our shame and our punishment from the Father. And so that's the first way that, that uh, God has declared victory as one victory over the serpent is through the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And secondly, now Christ Gets vic- the, the second way that Jesus gets vi- victory over the serpent is through those who abide in the victory of Christ. Christians who abide in the victory of Christ. And, and last week my wife asked me about a statement I'd made, which I always appreciate. And it, please do feel free of something. If I say something and you're like, not quite sure, please ask me or text me. I'd love to... Um, talk more about it, but um, I made the statement last week that Satan can only gum you, that his fangs have been removed. And, and we were talking about that, how then, if that's the case, what, how do you understand suffering? How do you understand persecution? We found on, um, I don't like to reference shows, but I think this one would be good to watch. Um, Netflix did a, a 35-minute documentary called The White Helmets. And these are men in Syria right now who have dedicated themselves to after a bombing happens, they go in to try and rescue people out of the rubble and dig people out of the, 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 the rubble that has happened. And so we watch this 35-minute uh, documentary on these men. And, and just as they, like, they don't know. You go to bed at night with your children and they don't know if they're going to wake up and see them. They, they go off to help and they don't know if they'll come back home and they're family will be there. And we think of the persecuted church and you wonder, well, if Satan has been defeated, why is there such turmoil? Why is there such, um, such a war going on still? And, and I and just want to clarify that when we think about the serpent's power in his defeat, there is an ultimate defeat coming on that day when Christ casts him forever into the pit, into hell. But when we talk now about our victory over the serpent, it is a Romans 8 kind of victory. Yes, there is struggle. Yes, there is battle still. But as Paul writes in Romans 8, verse 1, he says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by flesh, could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. God has purposed now through his followers to continue to display his victory over the serpent. And when we think of Satan's 
fangs being removed. It is what Jesus said in Matthew 10, 28. Do not fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Satan has no power beyond the grave. If you are in Christ, there is no condemnation. There is no judgment over you anymore, and the serpent has no grounds to accuse you. As Paul would go on to say, we are now more than conquerors. And this is what I mean when I talk about the, the, the Satan being now having his fangs removed, us walking in the victory of Christ. So as we are Christians, um, you get a there's a passage in Luke 10 where Jesus has just sent out his disciples to go in twos and to proclaim the gospel, to heal the sick. And Jesus makes this statement when they come back and they report the glorious things that God did through them. The, the demons were cast out and the gospel was proclaimed. And Jesus, in, in, um, in Luke 2.18, he says, The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And so, yes, we will encounter conflict. We will encounter temptation. We will encounter trial. But we are now sent out as agents of light, declaring the victory of God over the serpent. And which is why when I say the second way God gets victory is by those who abide in the victory of Christ. You must understand what it means to be a Christian, what it means to follow Christ, what it means to walk in victory over the serpent, because there is a gospel today that would say all you must do is walk down an aisle, sign a card, get baptized, and then go live your life how you want but you are still a Christian. That is not the biblical picture of Christianity. But rather, the biblical picture of Christianity is one who has been born of God, has been transferred from darkness into light, so that the things that were once precious, the things that you once desired of darkness, now you, you hate them, you reject them, they make you sick, you can't live in them, and you've been brought into light, and so you begin to tread on serpents through the word of truth, through prayer, through persevering in your faith. That is Christianity. Mere confessions. It is, it is horrifying when you look at Matthew 7 and you realize what Jesus is saying in Matthew 7, verse 21, is that there will be many on the day of judgment who have made confessions of faith. Is that not what Jesus is saying? He says in Matthew 7, 21, he says, many will say on that, um, sorry, Matthew 7, 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. 
On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. To be a Christian is to abide in the victory of Christ. Not perfectly We struggle, we fall flat on our face, we say hateful things to our spouse, we look at images we should not look at, and we have to get then on our knees and repent to God and ask for forgiveness. And we fall, but yet we rise again by the strength that God gives. I think it's exactly, and and maybe, maybe you're struggling with, how do I know that I'm a Christian? How do I actually know that I have encountered Christ, that I have been born again, that I have been brought from darkness to light. I encourage you, read through 1 John. Read through the letters that 1 John wrote because he states that he writes these things to you that believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And there are three basic tests that John gives in his epistle. The test of truth. How do you react to truth? Because if you are in the light, you will love it. You will submit to it. How do you love? Do you love your brothers, John would ask. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light. In him, there's no cause for stumbling. And John walks you through these ways to test yourself. And there's the third test of obedience in John. Are you walking in sin without repentance? Because you can't do that as a Christian. You will repent. You will come back. Maybe not instantly, there can be seasons of backsliding, but not this habitual staying in your sin and, 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 and loving it. And it's, it's, John picks up on the imagery of the seed, and, um, and then we'll wind this down. In 1 John 3.8, maybe you want to just turn there for a moment. And I do encourage you, um, when we think about what it means to be a Christian, let us use the scriptures as the test. Because mere confessions can deceive us. And yet we need to see if we are walking in the light. In John, 1 John 3, he describes not only this victory of Christ over the serpent through those who follow Jesus, but he talks about the true Christian. He says in verse 8 of chapter 3, Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's, there it is, seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. And these are the things that we need to be looking at, even as a body. If if my wife comes to me and she says, you know what, you have been very angry the past few days. You've been short with the children and your temper has not been good. If I respond in, in, in further anger and like, you know what, I don't really care right now. I don't even want to hear what you're saying. 
It's not my fault, it's their fault. And if that's my response day after day, then there is no reason to suppose that the faith that I claimed was authentic if I will not repent, which is why when you see a brother or sister walking in sin, it's not just for the elders to be the ones to come. If you know them, you care for them, you come to them, you say, listen, your life right now is not lining up with the Scriptures There's a disconnect. You're walking in sin. Doesn't that bother you? You're grieving the Spirit of God. You're making a mockery of the gospel that you claim you believe. And you come to them firmly and graciously and say, repent, turn back to Christ, walk in the light. And if they refuse, we see such extreme cases as in 1 Corinthians 5 for that really crazy situation of sexual immorality in 1 Corinthians, Paul tells them, turn them over to Satan. Turn them over that they feel the weight of what they are doing, that they might repent and come back. It's not turning them over to see their destruction, but they would come back to Christ and to be healed and to declare war on this serpent. And so as we think about now, we living in the last days, waiting for Christ's return, we must be repenting of sin if we are going to walk in victory over the serpent. We must be loving one another. Sometimes I know there's, there's struggles in our, in our midst. You see someone hurting and you're not sure how to help. And, and I heard one preacher say that just think about what you would do if that person was your brother or sister or your mom and dad. How would you help if your brother was going through this. And we often know the response then. Do that for one another. Serve them, bring them a meal, care for them. And as we love one another, by the grace of God, we trample upon serpents. God has, I mean, of course, God could have, after Christ rose from the dead and and, and conquered, paid the debt of our sin, he could have made it all end right there. Everyone glorified, the end comes, but God has purposed this season that we are in. That he would display his victory and power over the forces of darkness. That all the tribes and tongues and nations would hear the gospel, and when that happens, we're told, the end will come. And so we are to be about this if we are going to be walking in the victory of Christ over the serpent. Paul even says that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to rulers and authorities in heavenly places. And I've never had a new vehicle, but I've had a new, you know, a vehicle that's new to me. And when you get something new, you want to share it. You want to show it, right? You want to take a picture and put it on Facebook. You want to drive it downtown. Or maybe you get a new tractor and you want to put that thing to work. You want to, you want to get in the field and, and see what it can do. Or maybe you have a new child and you can't wait to tell your friends and show them the baby and get their picture on Facebook or however you share pictures these days. I think in the same way as God declares and wins his victory through Christ and he begins to gather in a people, he is pleased to display his glory through the church. God is showcasing his victory and his power through you over the principalities of darkness and even in heavenly places. They are looking down and saying, wow, God is powerful 
He is worthy. And so we need to pray for one another that we battle well. And then the, the, the final, and we, this is going to point you to this passage because it's pretty clear. Um, the final victory over the serpent, over his rule, will be, we see it in Revelation 20.10, when Christ will cast that serpent, the devil, into eternal hell, into eternal suffering. Oftentimes we have this kind of Greek mythology view of the devil where he's the one ruling hell. It's not Christian, that's Greek mythology. Satan doesn't get to sit on a throne in hell. He's cast into it to be punished. And we see that that will happen after all is fulfilled, after the people of God have been gathered in. We are told that Satan will be cast down in verse 7. And and following, you see then the judgment in, in chapter 20, verse 10. The devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And that will be the final victory over the serpent. And then those who have followed the serpent in darkness will also be cast in with him in judgment. And so as we close, we know the battle was won at the cross, but we are now called to live out the victory of Christ. And as a Christian here, I plead with you to press on. Stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Raise up those hands around you that are weak and struggling and doubting. Ask the Lord to fill you with fresh faith and boldness. And let us take the gospel to the nations as we are now the heralds of the kingdom of light. And if you're not a Christian here this morning, then it's not a matter of cleaning yourself up. It's not a matter of maintaining church attendance or tithing. There is only one way to come out of the rule of the serpent, and that is to fall upon the feet of Christ. Confess your sin, turn from it, and call upon him for forgiveness, for renewal, to be filled with his spirit. And he will not cast away those who come and humbly ask. And so if you need to do that this morning, deal with the Lord. Do not give your life to the kingdom of the serpent that is already pronounced to judgment. And so I encourage you to, if you need to confess sin, if you need to grab someone that you've sinned against and confess that to them, if you need to call upon Christ for the first time, I plead with you to do that, for he is gracious and willing to forgive all who would come. Let us pray and then we will close. Lord God, we thank you that you have so freely given of yourself, Lord. Lord, that you have submitted yourself to unspeakable abuse, humility, pain. Lord, that you would declare victory over the serpent that we had handed the kingdom to as humanity. Lord, you have extended grace. And Lord, that when we, while we're still your enemies, you died for us. Lord, would these things be precious to us this morning? And would you be at work in our midst that we might reign with Christ even now? And I ask this in his name. Amen.
Well, thank you for tuning in today to the sermon uh, preached at Fairview Cornerstone Baptist Church. And again, if you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. You can write to us at church at fairviewcornerstone.com. God bless.